I wish our brother Savio was here because this quote or the first part of this sermon is from Lord of the Rings and I know he would really appreciate that so I hope he's joining with us online. <laughs> In J.R. Tolkien's classical fictional work, The Lord of the Rings, Middle-earth's heroes, more commonly known as the Fellowship of the Ring, band together to destroy the Ring of Power. If you've ever watched the series, you may remember, and I hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone, you may remember that in the last installment of the trilogy, they finally get to Mount Doom, where they can forever rid Middle-earth from the threat of the Dark Lord Sauron. But just before that moment, Tolkien describes for us the events of the Black Battle of ba- Black Gate. Pardon me. For those of you who don't know, at this point in the storyline, Aragorn's forces are surrounded by hordes of orcs, black, ugly-looking monsters for miles and miles. And the image that you get from watching it, or for our more refined folk, like our brother Savio, from reading it, the image that you get is that this is a very bleak situation. If you didn't know the end of the story, again, spoiler alert, you know, the hero wins, or happen to move the mouse at that point to recognize there's more of the story to come, you think that this movie is some sort of horrible tragedy. My point is that we know from some films, films such as these, that there's situations in which we think that the forces of darkness are about to snuff out the forces of light. It seems like if the wicked evildoers are about to destroy the heroes of the story. And this is the situation that's likely facing this community of believers John is writing to within the first century. Evil appears to be thriving and gaining the upper hand among these believers as false teaching surfaces and drives what is likely a significant portion of the believers there, the professing believers, you would have to say, to embrace false teaching. You can just imagine if, say, Benny Hinn was to set up shop at Sky Mall and a vast number of our membership left, or a significant portion, say 40% or something like that, that would be extremely discouraging. I mean, most of us would probably have to sit down and contemplate life, like what have we been doing, where have we been, like a whole set of stuff. That would be a really unsettling moment in the life of the church. And at this time, it would appear that Satan and the world are getting the upper hand, like if Benny Hinn had just taken or won over a whole bunch of people from our church. That's the situation, and I hope that I've set the context for you to understand and appreciate that the church would have been feeling at least some level of discouragement, some level of being unsettled, some level of uncertainty because of this circumstance. We don't know exactly how they felt, but I'm just trying to give you a sense that this is something that could have been prevailing in the current context. And it's against this backdrop that we find John trying to bolster the confidence or assurance of believers by giving them signs of the new birth or signs of Christianity more simply. We talked about one of these signs last week, specifically that the existence of love for other believers proves that you love God. It proves that your love for God isn't just mere lip service. It isn't just double speak. It's that it's genuine, it's sincere. 
But John doesn't leave it there because the question may be asked, how do I know that I love the children of God? And so he goes on to answer this very question in verse 2. For those of you who may remember, I didn't dwell at all on the verse last week. And the reason is it's more related to our current uh, block of text than the one we treated to last week, even though I read it. But I don't want you to miss the connection, and that's why I read verse 1. John has labored for quite some time to explain that those who love God must also love his children. As we, we explained that last week, those who love God's children are born of God, as we see in verse 1. And by loving fellow Christians, it is proven that your love for God is genuine. But in verse 2, John explains how we may know that we love the children of God. We read there that we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. But you may have noticed when we read that through the passage that John justifies his point by stating something that's kind of repetitive. In verse 3, we read, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So in verse 2, we, we read, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. And then John says in verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So is this needless tautology? Is this redundant repetition of the previous verse? Did the people compiling the manuscripts get it wrong? I don't think so. And obviously... To make such a claim about scripture is to agree that there are some things in scripture that we would be fine to do without, which is obviously not true. We don't have anything superfluous in scripture. As I think our brother mentioned this morning, every single word of scripture is God-breathed. It is written for our instruction, for our reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, such that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So with that being said, just getting away from that objection that's, that may just be repetitive, with that being said, John is actually trying to stress the point or drive home the point that may not have been made clear from the previous sentence. He says in verse 2 that we love the children of God and evidently we know that we are born again, as Satan in verse 1, when we love God and keep His commandments. But people may read that and think, well, those are two different things. There's the love of God, and then there's keeping of His commandments. Two different things. Someone may read it and come away with that impression that, that we love the children of God is, is A, and then keeping His commandments is B. It's quite possible to think they're two different things, two separate things. So John pauses here for a minute to clarify in verse 3 that the love for God and keeping of his commandments can't be separated. Only those who keep his commandments love the Lord. In the words of Jesus himself, and I, I was laughing with my wife when Tev was saying all of these verses in the sermon this morning. In the words of Jesus himself, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As we spoke about last week, in this context, it seems as though there were people who were trying to say you could love God but not keep his commandments. John wrote when we were going through, chap through chapter 4 that if anyone says that I love God, if anyone says and yet doesn't love his brother. So there were people who thought you could love God and not obey his commandments. 
But it's also possible. It's also possible to commit the error of thinking that you are loving Christians without reference to God's commands. Friends, in the day of tolerance, love is seen as the most important virtue. And unguided by the underlying teaching of Scripture, it is simply informed by worldly ideals. And so you would hear things like, it's not loving if you don't attend your professing Christian brother's wedding when he wants to marry his male partner. That's not loving. Or it's not loving if you want to focus on a brother's flagrant sin in the life of the church because that's mean-spirited and harsh. That's not loving. Love would seek to just get along with everyone else and try to embrace their alternative life choices. In each case, these are applications of love that are not informed by the specific commands of Scripture. Christians, John writes, are guided by the love of God. But the love of God demands that we take heed to specific commandments. We'll get to this a bit later, but it is the way of the world to do otherwise. It's the way of the world to think that you can love God or love some idea of God and think that you don't have to obey his commandments. But we'll get to that later. But suffice it to say, that's what many in this church had done. And we touched on that last week. But I want to hone in on what John is saying by writing for us this, these words in verse 3. Love is not love. And more specifically, love for Christians is not genuine if it's not founded upon the commandments of Scripture. I think given the examples I gave just now with a professing Christian marrying his male partner, I mean, that's obvious. That That's just a breaking of the commands of Christ. That's, that's obvious. But... Have you ever considered whether it is your guiding principle to think about the specific commands of Christ when you're loving your brothers? When you think about loving other Christians, do you think about simply making them feel good? About trying to better their situation, giving them another like on Facebook? Is this your conception of loving your brothers? The Apostle John is providing us with a helpful guide to let us know whether this all-important characteristic of Christian life is genuinely present in your life. He's essentially helping us to be assured that we are born of God. In considering the purpose of John's writings, for, for those of you who may remember school days, unfortunately I'm not old enough to have more robust examples from life. But from school days, you can imagine if you were struggling through something like quadratic equations or something, or factorization. You're laughing because of my comment. If you're struggling through something like that, like you're uncertain, like, have I missed a step? And you look over to see what your friends have done. And they're doing something else. So you start getting nervous. But... Then the teacher comes along and says, this is how you know you've got the right answer and explains it to you and looks at you and then shows you, okay, this is what you have to do in order to get the right answer. This is something of what is happening. There were plenty of quote-unquote saints about the place suggesting that they were walking in the light 
that they know Jesus the Son, that they love God. And all these claims are likely made by false converts. But John helpfully provides us and writes to us like a teacher and clarifies what it looks like to love God, what it looks like to be born again, to walk along the narrow way. What does it mean to be a true follower of Christ? What does that mean? It means embodying and living out the specific commands of Scripture. And as I was going through this, studying this passage, I thought it would be helpful for us to consider just how many specific commands in Scripture relate to one another. I just did a quick Google, and I saw that there were about 30 commands distinct from one another. You know, commands of Scripture repeat themselves. 30 commands that are specifically directed to how we should love one another, how we should interact with one another, what should guide our relationship with one another. And I'll just give you a sampling for, for you to consider. Comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians again, 5.11. Stir up one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24. Show hospitality to one another. 1 Peter 4, 9. Be devoted to one another. Romans 12, 10. Teach one another. Colossians 3, 16. Care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Employ the gifts that God has given you for the benefit of one another. 1 Peter 4, 10. Bear with one another. Colossians 3.13 That's just a sampling that I found that may be helpful and not at all as a way to say that I've checked those boxes because all too often I don't to my shame. But more as a way to reorient my heart for what I'm supposed to be doing and what love for other Christians is supposed to look like. There are many more that could be added from the New Testament, I'm sure. There are I didn't even skim the Old Testament, but there is much instruction that can be gleaned from there. But I just wanted to point those ones to you to show that there is much to be said and much in Scripture that informs how we should be treating our brothers. The clear teaching we have is that genuine love for other Christians is only present where there's a life shaped by the love of God. And love for God means obedience to his commandments. John's point here isn't at all to undermine assurance. His point isn't for you to consider all the things that you've gotten wrong. Even though that is a, a consequence of considering your assurance. But his point is just like a good doctor. He's checking the spiritual pulse or showing whether whether by this diagnostic test you're actually showing signs of spiritual life it's helpful for us to consider when when we're in passages like these yes i display some measure of these characteristics in my life but there are certainly areas of weakness maybe i'm not showing hospitality as i ought to maybe i'm not as comforting as i ought to be Maybe I'm not employing my gifts as I ought to be doing. Those are, the, those are some of the things that come to our mind and that are really focused on when we consider passages like this. 
But we've spent some time looking at the specific way John writes to provide this group of believers with assurance. He writes to confront them with the truth that anyone who says that they love the children of God are guided by the specific commands of Scripture. When you're doing that, you can be assured that you are born of God. Because as we read in verse 1, anyone who is born of God loves the Father and loves those who are born of Him. So he writes to provide this assurance. And in his customary style, he does it by appealing to observable realities in the life of the Christian that can be verified. But John moves on to this theme of overcoming the world in verse 4 and 5. That seems disjointed or disconnected from his previous thought. So what exactly is the connection that the apostle is trying to make in verse 4? In verse 4 we read, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And later in verse 5 we read, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We know that there has to be some connection because there's the use of the word for in verse 4. He says for everyone. But what is he trying to explain given what he's laid out in the previous preceding verses? I think in order for us to understand this or to better understand this, we need to consider what John means by the world. As I'm sure you're aware, the world has various meanings in Scripture. It can mean, based on the concept, based on the context, the created order. It can refer to everyone on earth. It can refer to an entire nation, state, and so on. But in this context, the world refers to the organized system or principle that is opposed to God. Of course, this would include Satan, the Antichrist mentioned in this book. But it would also refer to sin, more generally speaking. In chapter 2, which we passed eons ago, you may recall that John gives us an idea of what is in the world or what the world consists of. He says that all that is in the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, the world consists of all that appeals to our sinful appetites. Every time someone sins, the world has been successful in carrying out its mandate to lure us, to get or draw out from us those sinful appetites. Every time someone sins, the world has been successful in doing that, in doing its mandate, which is to attract us, to make and draw from us those desires that are fleshly, those desires that are sinful. Overcoming the world then Overcoming the world, then, would mean that it has been unsuccessful in trying to get you to sin. Or stated more positively, it means that instead of following the desires of the flesh, you follow the commandments of God. So where am I going with this? John's encouragement and the connection this word for has to the preceding verses is this. The one who overcomes the world has rejected the advances the offers the world gives and instead obeys God's commands and so proves that they are children of God. And John encourages us by giving two reasons we conquer or overcome the world. The first is Christians will conquer because of the new birth. 
And the second is because they have conquered because of faith. So let's begin with the, the latter one first. We're kind of switching the order. Let's begin with Christians have conquered because of their faith. Since the fall of Adam into sin, the world has used its subtle lure to cause men everywhere, universally, to fall into sin. I've explained this before, but the way the world works to conquer its victims is more like undercurrents in the sea working to drown its victims. It presents the sandy beaches and the pristine shores and encourages you to just go and take a dip. And after you enjoy the coolness or the coolness of the water, it encourages you to just wade in a little more. And after you've waded in and the water is shoulder high, it tells you, go for a swim, lay flow. But as you're doing this and basking in the glory of the sun and the cool waters, etc., you recognize that you've drifted so far from the shore that you can't find your way back. That's the way the world works. That's the lure of the world. It's not that Satan comes with a pitchfork and pokes you in your arm and tells you, go and sin or else I'll poke you again. That's, that's completely not what happens. The way of the world is a far more subtle thing. It presents a good thing to us like, this, like the serpent presented a good thing to Eve when she was with the serpent in the garden and the serpent said, eat of the fruit, you shall be like gods. That's a good thing. Why wouldn't I want to be like God? The world's victories against men since the fall of Adam into sin are innumerable. All of the victims of the world lie strewn on the battlefield. Some have fallen to lust. Some have been lured by the trappings of greed. Some, like these false converts, have fallen to the lie that you can love God without keeping His commandments or without reference to His commandments. There are many victims to the powers of the world. And you can see the evidence of its conquest in the several tombs and graves left behind as it sends men to their taskmaster called sin. Even you, dear saint, even you this very day have fallen victim in some way, some way, to the trappings of the world. Whether it is specifically by functioning as though you can love God's children in a way that doesn't have reference to God's commands, specifically the con in the context that we have here, whether it's specifically like that, or whether it's more broadly by just being lured away by your own lust and sinning. I am certain that today, yesterday, last week, the world has prevailed against you. But praise be to God, there is one who has overcome the world. God himself has come down from heaven and clothed himself in the likeness of human flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus has overcome the world by refusing the devil's offers in the wilderness, by escaping every temptation and provocation of sin. He's lived a completely obedient life in subjection to God's commands and has triumphed over the world. The world has added to its list of victims all but one. In the theater of God's creation, God has appointed one hero to prevail against the undefeated antagonists of humanity, 
and he, meaning Jesus, has prevailed. Jesus' obedience extends much farther than anything demanded of anyone, since, as you know, Jesus had to both fulfill the moral law as well as fulfill any messianic commands that he was given specifically as Messiah. He had to do those. And one of those requirements as the Messiah was to obey God by being hung on the tree, being accursed, as we read in in the Torah, being accursed, being hung on the tree for our sins. God's wrath was poured out for on Christ judicially because of the sins we have committed. The world lured everyone born of Adam away towards sin, and all of them willingly went to their own destruction. And that sin that incurs the penalty of death and the wrath of God, Jesus atones for at Calvary and proves that he is victorious by rising from the dead. By faith, we are united to Christ to participate in the same victory that he has won. We haven't obeyed any of the commandments that are listed in Exodus 20 at all. Any of the commandments that you read in scripture, you cannot go before the Lord on judgment day and say, look, Lord, at least I got one. No one in all of human history can do that except Jesus. Though you have not done this, Lord, though you have not personally obeyed any of the commandments that God has given you, John's encouragement to us is this, that we have overcome the world through our allegiance with Christ. Just in the same way that a whole team scores when one person makes the touchdown. I'm thinking of you, Peter. So all who are united with Christ benefit from his salvific work because they are on team Jesus. Everyone benefits because Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has risen from the dead. Those who align themselves and align themselves with him by faith participate in all that he has won. Though it may seem as though the world has the upper hand as you look around and see that persons who profess Christianity are departing toward the world and they seem to be getting more and more worldly, maybe even looking at yourself and considering the effect that the world has on you, the victory that was won at the cross blares a different theme. It does not blare the theme of defeat. It doesn't blare the theme that you have not prevailed. It blares the theme that you have overcome through Christ. And what we ought to do is appropriate this truth as our own, even as we battle in our daily lives. There's just something about knowing that the battle is won when you are battling sin itself. There's just something that changes the dynamics of how you fight if you know the end result from the very beginning. And John presents us with the end result. He says that everyone who has faith in Christ has overcome. As mentioned before, faith is one one way we overcome the world. Or stated more accurately, faith is the way in which we have overcome the world. But John speaks about the ongoing overcoming believer's experience because of the new birth. 
Through the new birth, believers have a different relationship with the world. The world doesn't have to do much to entice the sinner. That is fairly easy to do since all the sinner wants to do is sin. That's their natural estate. As we spoke about last week, all a sinner can do is sin. And it's not because there's some defect in his brain that neurons in his brain aren't firing off properly. Is that that's all his will is bent to do, sin. That, that, is, that, is, that is the effect. The, the world's effect on a sinner isn't great. There's not a great effect because that's all a sinner wants to do. But within this context, there are believers who are not loving other Christians. There are people who are professing to be Christians who have not loved other Christians. And the world has drawn them away to believe that they can do that. I'm not saying or I'm not at any point trying to disregard the fact that we have eternal security. Obviously, what I'm saying is that their faith in Christ was proven to be fallacious. They didn't have any faith. It was exposed for what it was. But I am saying that there is a tendency for us to just look at the cross and think that's something in the past and not think about our present engagement with our ongoing corruption, our ongoing fight against sin. We ought to be seeing in our lives and mirroring in our lives in some way, in some measure, this desire to overcome the world. And it has to actually be a reality. That's what John is saying. This ought to be our aim. To look at the many commands the Lord has given us and see how best we can honor Him. It isn't legalism to set your heart on trying to obey one or two particular commands better. That isn't legalism. The unregenerate heart thinks something like that is of no use. But as the renowned Matthew Henry warns, victory over the world isn't achieved passively. Listen to what he says. Unless this victory over the world is begun in the heart, a man has no root in himself but will fall away, or at most remain an unfruitful professor. Yet these vanities are so alluring to the corruption in our hearts that without constant watching and prayer, we cannot escape the world or obtain victory over it or the God and Prince of it. In other words, you will not overcome the world unless you're urgent, earnestly and urgently seeking to overcome your sin by being watchful and being prayerful. The quote that I just wrote isn't something that is new or novel in Christianity. You know that you ought to be killing your sin. We know the familiar quote from John Owen. Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We know this. Matthew Henry is just reiterating that same idea again. The scripture teaches, yes, the Lord has done a work on our heart that enables us to overcome sinful promptings of the world. And the Lord promises that those who are born again do overcome. But that only happens by prayerful seeking of the Lord's help to put to death the deeds of the flesh. As I was thinking about this, it's like 
the Lord has beat up a very strong opponent that no one could ever beat up and has left him battered and bruised and powerless and has left you with the tools to keep him down until he's finally defeated. That's something of how we are supposed to approach overcoming the world. The Lord has done a work. Death will finally be defeated. Sin itself will be finally defeated. But right now it has been rendered powerless. You as a Christian do not have to sin. Any situation you approach and you say that you have to sin, you're violating the scripture. As our brother Tevin helpfully preached one day on having a way of escape, there is a way of escape from sin. There is a means by which you can put to death sin. So look to this enemy and keep jabbing him. Keep jabbing him so he stays down. Juke him in the ribs, kick him in the face. Do what is necessary. Work out so you get stronger, the spiritual muscles that we heard about this morning, so that you can keep this enemy of the world at bay. That enemy of the world is at work even in your own members, remember that. I know it's not a perfect analogy what I spoke about with the strong man, but what I wanted to convey is that the world has no hold on you, dear Christian. Christ has conquered the world on your behalf and now empowers you by his spirit to live personally a life that is victorious over sin. All of our help for overcoming sin has been provided in Christ alone. He has done a great work and now calls us to live a life that is consistent with his call to us to repudiate the world. We celebrate all he has done week by week in our daily lives. And we gather and praise his name for the victory he has won on our behalf. And as I thought of a song that kind of communicates this idea, I thought that we should join and sing number 177 in Christ alone. Because it communicates, as the lyrics are written down, it communicates something of what is needful for us to understand. That it's only in Christ that we can be victorious, yes. But even as we strive to look and celebrate that victory that Christ has won, we ought to be looking for how and in, the ver in various ways how we can obey God's specific commandments.